So the reading is Mark chapter 9, starting at verse 14. So that's Mark 9, starting at verse 14. So I'd love for you to follow along in your Bibles, or just listen and let the word flow over your hearts. When they came to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd around them, and the teachers of the law arguing with them. As soon as all the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder and ran to greet him. What are you arguing with them about? he asked. A man in the crowd answered, Teacher, I brought you my son, who is possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. You unbelieving generation, Jesus replied, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. So they brought him. When the spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into a convulsion. He fell to the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked the boy's father, How long has he been like this? From childhood, he answered. It has often thrown him into a fire or water to kill him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us. And help us. If you can, said Jesus, everything is possible for one who believes. Immediately, the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. When Jesus saw that a crowd was running to the scene, he rebuked the impure spirit. You deaf and mute spirit, he said. I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. The spirit shrieked, convulsed him violently and came out. The boy looked so much like a corpse that many said, He's dead. But Jesus took him up by the hand and lifted him to his feet and he stood up. After Jesus had gone indoors, his disciples asked him privately, Why couldn't we drive it out? He replied, this kind can come out only by prayer. Thanks, Amanda. Good evening, friends. It's uh, great to be with you this evening. My name is Dave Gilchrist. If we haven't met before, I'm a regular at the 8.30 service. And as you've already heard, we, of course, are back in our series tonight, Hope Has a Name. In fact, this is the concluding um, week on our current topic from different stories in the Gospel of Mark. Tonight, we're going to be covering four key points, and the first key point is going to be around the context, so contextualizing what we're learning about and making sure we're aware of what was actually happening, the brevity of the situation. We'll then move into a focus on a couple of characters in the story. So the father, 
the father who had a remarkably honest assessment of his own belief. Then we move on to the disciples, their self-reliance and lack of faith. And then finally, well, how does this really apply to us? How do we live by faith for Jesus in our daily lives? So let's start off by painting a picture of what was actually going on here in the context of our story. So within the context of our story, we really see failed hopes and failed expectations. It begins with Jesus walking down a mountain with Peter, James, and John. Now, if we just take one step back and we ask ourselves, well, what were they doing coming down the mountain? Well, they'd just been on a rather interesting trip up the mountain. This wasn't any ordinary Blue Mountains hike. This was a trip up the mountain with a difference. Because while they were up there, suddenly Jesus was transformed. Suddenly his clothes were all dazzling white. He gets enveloped. He ends up appearing so different. And unbelievably, two gentlemen arrive there. Moses and Elijah with Jesus and start speaking to him. Now, I don't know about you, but this sounds to me like a mountaintop experience like no other. I have experienced a couple of mountaintop experiences, but I have not ever had anything like this. The one thing, though, that we do know about the mountaintop experience is, unfortunately, they don't normally last very long. They normally end up translating into a reality very quickly. You're on the mountaintop, and then, of course, you're back into reality. And, of course, right now we're at the end of a school holiday, and in some ways some of us are probably feeling the same way. Good holiday is coming to an end, and tomorrow it's back to work, back to normality, back to reality, back to Monday morning. Of course, you can feel the same way if you've just had a birthday or a wedding or a honeymoon. The mountaintop experience ends up moving into a valley moment. And right here in our story, we pick up where Peter, James, and John with Jesus have come off the mountain and they've moved into this inspiring, no, chaotic scene of failed expectations, failed hopes, characterized by arguments and frustration. There's a desperate father. Son is severely afflicted by a spirit, so much so that the son can't even speak. Evidently, the spirit has been wreaking havoc in the young boy's life, seizing him, throwing him to the ground. He's been foaming at the mouth, gnashing his teeth. In fact, his whole body has been affected. And the father is confronted with this reality that the disciples could not help his son. We read a bit more details in the parallel passage in Luke. So if we go to Luke 9 and look at verses 38 and 40, we read a man, which was the father, a man in the crowd called out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son. Or he is my only child. I begged your disciples to drive the spirit out, but they could not. 
The problem with great expectations is that when they are dashed, they become great frustrations and then they become great and heated arguments. And that's what we are seeing here. The nine disciples of Jesus who had not gone up the mountain are now embroiled in these arguments and they are coming under fierce challenge from the teachers of the law. I think you would probably agree with me that this really is a hopeless situation. Once again, a situation that can only be transformed by an encounter with Jesus. And so we move into point number two, which is focusing on one of the key characters in the passage, the Father. So Jesus arrives with Peter, James, and John. The people are overwhelmed, and they run to greet Jesus. And as Jesus arrives, it's almost like the whole mood starts to change, as though hope has arrived when Jesus arrives. Because as we know, hope has a name. Hope's name is Jesus. Jesus asks, what are you arguing with the disciples about? And the Father is very quick to then talk through what he is struggling with. Jesus replies and laments. He says, oh, unbelieving generation, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? We're not completely sure who Jesus is addressing here. Is he talking to everybody around him? Or is he just talking to the disciples because they couldn't cast out the spirit? It's most likely that he was talking into the unbelief of the masses, but also to the weakness of the faith and even his own disciples. What we do know for sure was Jesus saw a clear problem in this whole context. The problem was unbelief. The father concludes with a detailed description of his son's condition and then asks these incredible words, but if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. Imagine this, the father is asking God's only son if he can perhaps do anything. Father is desperate, but he's not fully convinced that Jesus can actually help. Jesus responds by saying, if you can, everything is possible for the one who believes. Again, we see that Jesus is emphasizing that this is all about belief and faith. And the father responds on the topic of belief with amazing words. Boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. What exactly does that mean? If you had someone close to you who you loved and you turned to them and you said, I do love you. Help me overcome my lack of love for you. I'm not sure how well that conversation would go for you, but I reckon it would be a difficult conversation. But what does the father mean here? Where well, he says, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. It's actually a remarkably honest answer from the father. Probably one of the most poignant lines in the New Testament. I do believe. Help my unbelief. The father confesses that he believes, but he acknowledges that indeed there is still 
some unbelief in his heart. Does this not express the perspective of Christian believers around the world and down the ages? Is this not an expression of us? Lord, we do believe, but help our unbelief. We have small faith alongside some doubt, some fear, and some unbelief. We can be thankful to God that He knows that we are all works in progress. He is working on us, and He is merciful, and He is kind, and He is patient. God wants us to be honest with ourselves and Him, recognizing moments of unbelief and asking Him to strengthen us in our unbelief. Back to our story, Jesus miraculously casts out the spirit from the boy. People around are worried that maybe the boy's died, but then it becomes clear that the boy is living and there is hope again. Jesus has brought hope to the father, to the son, and to the whole situation. We then move on to the next characters in our story, point number three, the disciples. Many times the disciples are heroes in our story, but unfortunately tonight is not one of those occasions. The disciples are displaying a fair amount of self-reliance and lack of faith. So much so that it actually feels like an awkward performance appraisal. You can just imagine. We've now had this moment where the spirit's been cast out. Everything's finished, and now they've gone back, and now the disciples have this rather awkward discussion. So why couldn't we cast out the spirit? In fact, this awkward appraisal reminds me of an English language test that I once did a couple of years ago on my visa application for Australia. I was living in Thailand at the time, and in order to get into Australia, I was told that I would need to do an English language test. Um, I wasn't sure that I understood quite why I needed to do an English language test, but quite clearly, Taryn, my wife, and myself had to go ahead and do the test. So we faced the reality of the test, and we found out that there were four sections in the test. There was speaking, listening, writing, and reading. And quite easily, you had to get six out of nine for each section in the test if you wanted to pass the test. In fact, your lowest score for the section that you performed weakest in was going to become your overall score. So I thought to myself, well, I've obviously got to get at least a six for each of the sections. But I felt pretty confident about everything. And... My wife, Taryn, was suggesting, I don't know if you passed papers online, and I said, well, no, I don't, really don't want to do that, thank you. Um, I actually would like this to be a challenge, right? I'd rather go in there and have the challenge of doing a test, but not actually preparing for it, because I'm pretty sure that I'm able to get through the test pretty well. Probably similar to what the disciples were thinking when they heard about the spirit that they were going to cast out. I got on to the Friday did the speaking test, went incredibly well. Invigilator actually said to me, why are you even doing this test? Which I thought was a pretty good sign. And he said to me, please come back on Saturday for the other three sections. I got there with 220 people in this big hall, but I knew that it should be pretty simple. 
got into the test and we started with the listening test and there were two scripts. The one was a question script where you could write your answers as you went and then there was a formal answer sheet which you would then send in at the end. Well, this is pretty easy. I've got 30 minutes to complete this and then 10 extra minutes to complete this. And it went incredibly well. Um, Finished my first section in uh, 30 minutes, transferred my answers and I was so confident that I stopped listening to instructions from there. I thought, well, this is easy, right? Um, We went into the reading test. I hadn't thought too much about what they were saying, but it seemed pretty much the same process. Went ahead, filled everything in, got to the 30-minute mark, and the invigilator said, pens down. And I thought to myself, well, that's okay. Just got my 10 minutes to fill in my answer sheet. I should be fine. And they said, please hand in your answer sheet. And I suddenly went cold. I thought to myself, hold on. I have all my answers, but they're all on the sheet. Where's my extra 10 minutes? Somewhere along the line, they had briefed all of us and said, you won't have the extra 10 minutes. Please make sure that your answers are on your sheet when you finish the 30 minutes. And of course, I suddenly realized that I was handing in an answer sheet with no answers to the section. Well, I went ahead and finished the writing test and walked out the door and thought, well, let's see how we go. Well, my results are up on the screen for all of you to see. I did rather well in the speaking and the listening, as was expected, writing pretty well too. But the reading side of the test, I got one out of nine for simply probably writing my name. There wasn't anything else on the answer sheet. And of course, as I said to you earlier, the the frustration of this whole thing was your final mark is based on your weakest section. So my final mark was a one. And I can tell you that to this day in Australian home affairs, I think everyone thinks I'm illiterate because that is still the score that is sitting on my answer sheet. I wonder how many times you've gone into a test or into an exam a little bit overconfident a little bit self-reliant, and then suddenly realized that it's not as easy as you thought or that you needed to study a little bit harder. Similar situation here with the disciples. The disciples were, let's say, rather well-trained and well-versed in casting out spirits. The reason I say that is because if we look at a passage just a couple of chapters earlier, Same book, the book of Mark. What do we read? Then Jesus went around teaching from village to village, calling the 12 to him. He began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over impure spirits. Let me slow down a bit here. They drove out many demons or spirits and anointed many sick people with oil and healed them. Well, that is interesting background. So in the past... They had been casting out spirits. Had they done it once? No, no, clearly it had been far more than once. Something had clearly gone wrong. Why couldn't the disciples cast out the spirit? Well, Jesus makes it clear. We get an insight into why in our passage and also in the parallel passage in Matthew. Let's have a look. Then the disciples came to Jesus in private and asked, why couldn't we drive it out? Jesus replied, because you have so little faith. 
Truly, I tell you, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. And then in our passage, Jesus replied, this kind of spirit can only come out by prayer. This is an awkward moment. It does feel like an awkward performance review. Evidently, the disciples were self-reliant, lacking faith, trying to cast out the Spirit in their own strength without praying like they should, most likely following a process or fixed formula that had served them pretty well in the past, but for some reason was not working in this case. They wondered at their lack of success, but they sure didn't wonder at their lack of faith. The disciples misconstrued faith. They had become a little bit self-sufficient. They were quickly learning that the battle with Satan and his forces is going to be difficult and an ongoing struggle. You can imagine what Jesus was thinking. He was going to be going away from them soon back to heaven and his disciples would need to be walking by faith day by day. And in this instance, his disciples were trying to drive out a spirit without prayer, without reliance on God. This clearly would have concerned Jesus greatly. Like my English test, it's very easy for us as Christians to often move forward in a kind of autopilot mode. I'll share two quotes that bear this out. Michael Green wrote in his book on the message of Matthew, referring to our story, but in Matthew, Michael Green says, so often when knowledge about God grows, actual dependence on God shrinks. The more settled and established a church becomes, the more it needs to learn afresh that it can achieve precisely nothing without sincere dependence on the Lord. I'll share another quote with you. Don Carson, who's the co-founder of the Gospel Coalition, highlights a similar concern. Don was asked the question, what is it that most concerns you about the Gospel Coalition in Canada, the future of the Gospel Coalition? And he said, well, what concerns him most about what happens in the Gospel Coalition in Canada is the same as that in the U.S. His concern is that we get so efficient and so influential, so solid in doctrinal and discerning missions that somehow the Spirit could get up and walk out and we'll never miss Him. Those are pretty sobering words, right? As we think through our own context, our own lives. How are we doing? How are we operating? Are we moving forward on our knees, praying for God to move powerfully? Are we heavily reliant on God? We know that God works powerfully through weak believers throughout history, for His power is made perfect in our weakness. But how are we living? Are we living by faith or are we living by our own strength? Let's consider as we conclude three key points on how to be living by faith. You'll see those three points coming up now. We need to be strapped to Jesus, empowered by Jesus, and stepping out in faith 
for Jesus. Let's start with the first one. What do we mean by strapped to Jesus? Well, let me just relate two experiences that I had earlier in my life where I felt probably the most out of control. Firstly, in my 20s, the visual is relevant on the right-hand side. I did a tandem skydive strapped to an experienced, trained, and certified skydiver. I have to say that climbing onto the wing of a perfectly good aircraft at 10,000 feet in preparation for a jump felt incredibly crazy. But the fact that I was strapped to the expert gave me enough courage to do the jump. I still felt rather petrified. And then in my 30s, I had the opportunity to ride on the back of a motorcycle in Bangkok and I felt almost as petrified as I did on the skydive when I considered the traffic there and the chaos on the roads. I was nervous about getting on the motorbike, but I knew that the motorbike rider was in control and that he had done this many times before. These two experiences provided me with some perspective on faith. Both experiences felt rather daunting and I felt way out of my comfort zone and largely out of control, but I was strapped to an expert in both cases. And that's what we do when we live for Jesus. We are strapped to him. He is the one who has the power. He is the one who leads us and who guides us. He is the one who we should be putting our faith um, in. We read in Hebrews 11, now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance in what we do not see. We also read in two verses in 2 Corinthians, for we live by faith, not by what we see, not by sight. And another verse, so we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is on what is unseen, for what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Brothers and sisters, we are to be walking by faith. What we see around us is passing away. What we don't see is eternal. God is calling us to always be reminded of that, that we need to put our faith in Him even though we can't always see Him and don't always know what He is doing. Faith and belief are about placing our full personal confidence, trust and assurance in Jesus, figuratively being strapped to Him. It's about throwing our life upon Him. And it's no surprise that Paul uses the term in Christ to describe our identity. We as believers are in Christ. We are strapped to Him. We don't follow a religion or religious rituals or formulas. We saw what happened when the disciples tried to do that. But rather we follow a person, Jesus Christ, our living King. We are inadequate. He is adequate. We don't have power. He has power. He has authority. We should come away from a passage like this not thinking I'm also weak, imperfect, and unable to do anything, but rather Jesus is my powerful Lord, able to do anything, for he is absolutely unstoppable. I was really encouraged by the Archbishop of Canterbury's speech at Queen Elizabeth II's funeral recently when he said, but Jesus, who does not tell his disciples how to follow, but who to follow, said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Her late majesty's example was not set 
through her position or her ambition, but through whom she followed. We follow a person. We follow Jesus. Jesus is asking us tonight, who drives our life? Who's in the driver's seat of your life tonight? Are you in the driver's seat or is he in the driver's seat? Do you run out in front of God, make your own life plans and then ask God at the very end to come up and bless your plans? Or do you rather wait on him to show his plans to you and he is in front of you and you are then praying for guidance from him and you step out into his plans? Jesus wants to be in the driver's seat of your life. Point number two, empowered by Jesus. The disciples could not cast out the Spirit because it was a kind that came out only by prayer. If only we understood the importance of prayer. God wants us to be Christians who are moving forward on our knees. We do believe, help us overcome our unbelief. Paul's prayer to the Ephesians encourages us in these things where he says, Now to him who's able to do immeasurably more than all we can ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within us. Brothers and sisters, in prayer we are constantly reminded of our own inadequacy and the complete adequacy of our Savior as we serve him. Nothing builds faith among people like prayer. For we are needy people casting ourselves on our Savior Jesus. Our final point as we consider how to be walking by faith and living by faith is stepping out in faith. Jesus wants us to be brave and courageous, stepping out in faith for him. He has uniquely placed you and I in our suburbs, in our streets, in our workplaces, in our schools, in our universities, and he wants us to step out in faith for him and share Jesus with others around us. Lord, we do believe. Help us overcome our unbelief. Are there Christ-sharing opportunities that scare you? Will you step out in faith, praying fervently as you go? Let's be a people who are praying. Let's be a people that are going to share Jesus with those around us, empowered by him, intentionally stepping out of our comfort zones for him. As we conclude, we were reminded in the story tonight that hope has a name. His name is Jesus, and we need to be living by faith, strapped to him, empowered by him, as we acknowledge our inadequacies and weaknesses and stepping out in faith for him. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you for this wonderful reminder, this reminder that you want us to be living by faith, not by sight, that you want us, Lord, not to be living lives of self-reliance, but rather trusting in you, knowing that you are all-powerful. Lord, we do believe. Help our unbelief. Help us, Lord God, to step out in faith, empowered by you, praying serving and honoring you in all that we do. In Jesus' name, amen.